You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. I ask you to please open with me to Paul's letter to the Romans, the book of Romans, chapter 1. Romans, chapter 1. We are beginning a new series this morning in the letter to the Romans. We're going to begin by reading our text, starting in verse 1. Paul and a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To those who are in Rome, who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And as we get into this study and as we look at this text today, Lord, may we have a clear understanding of the gospel and why it's such good news and what it means for our lives. And Lord, may we not only hear it and understand it, but Lord, may we believe it so much that we act upon it. Lord, may you make it so real and so alive in our hearts that we can't do anything but act upon it. Lord, may we receive it by faith and may we live by faith in light of it. Lord, we ask that you would let us have a breakthrough this morning as we come to study the gospel, understand what it is, and respond to it. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, our new series is called Saving Grace. And in this series, we're studying through Paul's letter to the Romans. And I have a promise for you as we begin this series. Here's my promise to you. If you stick with us through our study of Romans... It will change your life. I know that I'm promising a lot, but I don't think it's too much. If you stick with us through this study, through Romans, it will change your life. You will come to a greater understanding of who God is and what he has done than you have ever had before if you stick with this study through Romans, if you go through it all the way. All these messages are going to be available online. They're going to be on our website, on our podcast, like all our messages are, totally free. And we encourage you not only to listen to them, but to go back and listen to them again later and to share them with others. We want to help others. If others would benefit from these messages, share them with people. Get the message out there because this book and its message are absolutely life-changing. Let me give you some examples of how life-changing this book and its message have been throughout history. Let me tell you about a young man. He was raised in a Christian home, kind of. His mom was a Christian. His dad wasn't, but his mom was a Christian. And she used to take him to church when he was a kid. And he never really thought much of it. That's just what they did. They went to church. But then, of course, he grew up. He finished school and he moved away. He moved actually to quite far away from home. And he chose a very different path in life than the one that his mom had raised him in. He wasn't a Christian by any means. He wasn't living a Christian life. And one day he got a wake-up call. It was a girl he had been with who came up to him and said, I'm pregnant, and it's yours. And a few months later, she gave birth to a child, but she was not interested in marrying him. She probably knew he wouldn't make a very good dad. And in those days, he didn't have any uh, visitation rights or parental rights to speak of. And for him, this was just a huge wake-up call. He realized that his life was out of control. He realized how far he had gone away from the way that his mom had taught him and raised him and how far he had strayed. And so one Sunday morning, he stumbled into a church and he sat down probably in the back, you know, not wanting to probably draw a lot of attention to himself. It 
probably been a long time since he set foot in a church, and not since he was a kid, maybe. You know, he would later say, in, in retrospect, he says, he would say he had no idea what the preacher spoke about that morning, which is, uh, you know, it's one of those things. But after he left, he said there was one thing that stuck with him. He had this strong urge to go and read the Bible, and yet he didn't. He didn't go and read the Bible right away. But one day he said he was just feeling sorry for himself and anguish. Just his life was out of control. He had this child that he, he would never know. And he said that he was weeping in his friend's backyard. He was just crying. And he heard these children singing this song. And this song said, open the book and read it. Open the book and read it. And so he said, that's it. I was supposed to do that. And so he went and he found a Bible. And he opened it up. And he read it. And you know where he opened up? You know where he opened up. He opened up to Romans. And he started reading the book of Romans. And here's what he said happened as a result. He said, My heart was in a tumult within me. There was burning struggle going on inside of me. But as I read that message of that book, it was as if a light of relief from all anxiety flooded into my heart and all the shadows were dispelled. The trajectory of that young man's life changed forever that day. Shortly after that, he would go on to be baptized. The year was 386 AD. That young man's name was Augustine. And he went on to become one of the greatest Christian thinkers and leaders of all time. Many years later after that, there was another young man who had a close brush with death. He almost died, and he realized, I need to get right with God. And so he tried as hard as he could to be a good person. He became exceedingly religious so that he could somehow earn God's favor, so that he could get God to accept him and love him. He became so religious, in fact, that not only it wasn't even enough for him to go to church, he said, you know what? I'm just going to cash it all in. I'm going to become a monk. So he moved into a monastery. He spent all his time praying, going to church services, every single day but much to his frustration no matter how hard he tried he couldn't stop himself from having unclean thoughts he could get rid of all the other stuff that was external but he couldn't deal with his thoughts he still struggled with having unclean thoughts and he got to the point where he started beating himself and literally whipping himself to punish himself for his sins to try and persuade himself to not do it anymore but it didn't fix the problem it didn't solve the issue and he said that it got to the point where he began to resent God he began to hate God because he said in order for him to be right with God, in order for God to be pleased with him, he realized I have to be holy, but I can't do it. It's beyond what I can do. No matter how hard I train, I, I just can't do it. But one day he was given a job. As a monk, he was asked to teach Bible classes. And so he was teaching from the Psalms and he ran across this phrase that says, the righteousness of God which saves us. And he thought, well, wait a second. What do you mean the righteousness of God saves us? I thought the righteousness of God condemns us. And then he began reading and he started reading the Bible. See, because that was a thing a lot of people in his day just read about the Bible. They didn't read the actual Bible. But he was teaching Bible class, so he had to. And he read Romans chapter 1, the very text that we're looking at this morning. And here's what he said. Something happened. He understood it clearly, and it made sense. And this is what he said when he read Romans chapter 1. He said, when I understood what it was saying, I felt that I had been born again, that I had entered through the very gates of heaven. It was my breakthrough. And whereas I had formerly resented God, I began to love him, and he became my greatest comfort. 
That man's name was Martin Luther. And he started a worldwide movement of coming back to the Bible and rediscovering its message. See, this book, Romans, has changed people's lives. And I promise you, if you stick with it, it will change your life as well. Why is Romans so life-changing? Here's why. Why is Romans so life-changing? Why? Because Romans is about the gospel. It's about the gospel. Notice how Paul begins this letter. Verse 1, he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for what? For the gospel of God. This letter was written by Paul the Apostle. He was a man whose life had been changed by the message of the gospel. He was not always a Christian. In fact, there was a time in his life where he adamantly was opposed to Christianity, where he hated Christians. But one day, Paul met Jesus. Oh, he wasn't looking for Jesus, but you see, that was the glory of it. Jesus came looking for him. What grace. Jesus came looking for him. And as Paul met Jesus, his life changed forever. He received forgiveness. He received a new identity. He received a new purpose in life. And that's why Paul here introduces himself with two words. He says, I'm a servant of Jesus, and I'm called to be an apostle. A servant and an apostle. Those are two very different things, aren't they? A servant is a term of humility. An apostle is a term of privilege. But he says, this is who I am. I'm a servant of Jesus. I'm no different than anybody else, any other Christian. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. To be an apostle, though, that's a specific calling. He says, Jesus called me specifically, called me out, gave me a mission. The word apostle means to be sent, one who is sent out. And he says, I've received this special commission by Jesus, but it's not to my glory. I'm just a humble servant. It's, uh, that's all I am. I'm here not to lord over anybody. I'm here to serve. I'm here to serve God and serve people. That's what it's about. And he says, I've been set apart for what? For the gospel of God. See, when Paul wrote this letter, just some context, he was in the city of Corinth in Greece. He was in the city of Corinth, and at that point, he had been a Christian preacher for about 20 years now. He's in the city of Corinth, and he's a forward-thinking person. So as he's leaving Corinth, he's thinking, where am I going to go next? He knows that his next stop is Jerusalem. That's where he's going next, is Jerusalem. He's going there to bring a, a gift, a financial, monetary gift to the Christians there because they were struggling financially. So he says, I want to bring this gift from the churches in Greece to the church or in Jerusalem. And he says, but what am I going to do after that? And he had a couple ideas. He had an idea that maybe he would go to Spain. But he says, you know what I need to do no matter what? I want to visit Rome. I've always wanted to go to Rome, that great city, that capital of the empire, the biggest city in the world at that time, the first city to have one million residents. Imagine that, a city of one million people with no skyscrapers. Just one story, two story buildings max. And Paul says, I've wanted to go to that city my whole life. The capital of the empire, the center of the world. I want to go to Rome. See, Paul knew that there were Christians in Rome. He didn't start the church there. He had never met the Christians there. He had never been to the city of Rome before. But he was so happy and he was so excited to hear that there was a group of Christians meeting in that city. And so he wrote them a letter. He wrote them a letter, first of all, to share his heart with them and tell him that he's coming. But primarily, the focus of his letter was to give them something to study. He said, let me give you something to study. I know you guys are out there in Rome and I want to give you something to help you understand what Christianity is all about. The core message and the core understanding. This is what Christianity is about. See, the thing that is interesting about this letter, Paul didn't know these guys personally, whereas in a lot of his letters, he knows them personally. And here's what makes Romans different than most of the other letters in the New Testament. See, Paul in this letter is not writing to address a problem. 
So many of the New Testament letters are written for that reason. Paul's writing to address an issue or a problem, to put out a fire or to set some people straight, but not with Romans. See, when he writes to the first and second Corinthians, right, the Corinthians had some problems. And Paul knew them. He used to be their pastor. He started that church. And so he says, I need to write them a letter. I need to address these issues and, and get this right. Or let's say Galatians or the Thessalonian letters. Those were churches where there were problems. And so Paul is trying to put out a fire. He's trying to address the issues and make things right. But with Romans, Paul's not trying to fix a problem. He wrote Romans to explain in detail the core message of Christianity, the essence of what Christianity is all about. And he calls that what? He calls it the gospel of God. See, that's the focus of the book of Romans is God. Did you know that? The focus of Romans is God. And that's why I can tell you with all confidence that if you stick with this study of this book, you are going to get to know God better. See, there are many great themes in the letter to the Romans. There's the theme of righteousness, the theme of grace, the theme of sin, the theme of redemption, the theme of faith. But the word God is used 153 times in this book. That is an average of one every 46 words. One out of every 46 words is the word God. And you're like, okay, what does that mean? Well, it's used more frequently in this book than in any other book of the New Testament. So the book of Romans is a book primarily about God. And more specifically, it is about God's gospel. Do you know what that word gospel means? It's very simple. It means good news. It's good news. God has something good to say to you today. Do you know that? God has something good to say to you in this book. That message is what this book is all about. Martin Luther, when he wrote later on about this book, it was his favorite book of the Bible, and here's what he said. Romans is the purest statement of the gospel in the New Testament. He said, it is worthy that every Christian should know it word for word and learn it by heart. And he says, you should occupy yourself with the book of Romans every day as the daily bread of your soul. See, the thing that makes the book of Romans so life-changing is because it's all about the gospel. It's all about God's good news for you. And here at the beginning of this letter, Paul lays out for us three important points. Three important points. First of all, he tells us what the gospel is. Then he tells us what the gospel does. And then he tells us what we are to do with the gospel. So what the gospel is, what the gospel does, and what we're to do with it. Let's begin by talking about what the gospel is. What is the gospel? The gospel is good news, not good advice. Good news, not good advice. So I have a pastor friend, a friend who's a pastor. He's a pastor in Cheyenne, Wyoming, just down the road. And he, he posted a question to his congregation on Facebook. And I, I was part of this group, and so I saw the question and the responses. And his question is, he asked them, what is the gospel? That's simple. What is the gospel? And he said, imagine you're talking to somebody who is not familiar with that word, and they ask you, what does that word mean? You know, I hear you guys use this word all the time. What does that mean? Can you define it for me? And he says, what would you say to them? Now, I just challenge you right, as you're sitting there thinking about this. How would you answer that question? Think about it in one sentence. How would you answer that question? What is the gospel? And so he got a lot of responses. Here are some of the responses he got. One person said, the gospel is Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Another person said the gospel is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and do not gratify the desires of your flesh. Another person said the gospel is, as Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. And still another person said the gospel is a way of life. It means to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. 
Now, all those things those people said were all actually straight out of the Bible. And I believe wholeheartedly that their hearts were in the right place. But the thing is that all of those answers, they're not the gospel. They're, not the, they're good things. They're biblical things. But they're not the gospel. And this quick survey revealed just how much even people who are familiar with Christianity are not really clear on what the gospel is. And the reason I bring this up is not to be nitpicky at all. It's because here, here's the deal. How we understand the gospel has major implications for our lives and for our faith. And this is the first thing we need to understand about the gospel. The gospel is good news, not good advice. The word gospel, it means, literally, what it means and what it meant in that context, it means a pronouncement or a declaration of something good that has happened. Something good that has happened. So imagine in ancient times, if the king went off and he was in some faraway battlefield and he won a great victory, and by that victory, as a result of that victory, he secured freedom and peace and security for the people, then what would the king do? He would send out his messengers with what? A proclamation. A proclamation. A gospel a gospel proclamation uh, with his messengers to go out into all the lands, every corner, every village, and proclaim the good news of what had happened, to proclaim the good news of the king's victory, to declare that the war was over, the king had won, and peace had come. And that's what this word gospel means. It's the proclamation of something wonderful that has happened, something that has been done that changes everything. And so that's what we need to understand. The gospel is the good news of what Jesus has done. That he came to us. He fought our battle for us. He obtained the victory which we could never obtain on our own. He accomplished it through his life and through his death and through his resurrection. He defeated sin and he defeated death and the devil. And he opened the door for us to be reconciled to God and have eternal life. The gospel is good news, not good advice. It's a declaration of what has been done, of what Jesus did for you in order to rescue you and save you. Another person who responded to this survey said this, the gospel is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now that's getting a whole lot closer. But again, I want you to just notice this. The focus of that statement is what? Is it about what he did or is it about what you have to do? It's still talking about what you have to do. Now we're going to talk about that the gospel does absolutely demand a response from us. But at its heart, the gospel is first and foremost a declaration, not of what you and I have to do for God, but what God has done for us in Christ. Now, how do we respond to that news? That is absolutely important. We're going to talk about that in a minute. That's our third point. But we can't put the cart before the horse. We can't confuse what the gospel is with how we are to respond to it or what the gospel does. So the gospel is not primarily advice to be followed. It is a declaration of what God has done and what Jesus has accomplished. Secondly, the gospel is news but it's not new. It's news, but it's not new. That's what Paul says in verse 2. He says, The gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Yesterday we took a group from church here down to Denver to the museum, and we saw the Dead Sea Scrolls. And at one of the displays, I was really kind of surprised by what it said. Here's what it said. It said, Christians like to think that their faith developed independently of Judaism, but the Dead Sea Scrolls prove that isn't true. 
Christianity and Judaism share the same roots. And I was like, what? Who are these? Who are they talking about? Who are these Christians who don't think that Christianity and Judaism share the same roots? That's in the Bible. Like that is in verse two of this chapter. Paul is saying right here, the gospel isn't something new. It's not something that Jesus' followers came up with 2,000 years ago. The gospel is something that the Old Testament promised. It was promised by the prophets of old from way back, right? Like, so you read the Old Testament and that's what it's about. The coming of the Savior, the gospel. So do you know where the first instance of the gospel is found in the Bible? It's found in the very first book of the Bible. The very first, like you turn, you're on like page two. That's where it's at. The very first book of the Bible called the book of Genesis. It's, and it's referred to by a title. It's called the Proto-Evangelium. Proto-Evangelium literally means the first gospel or the original gospel. And the Bible begins in this way, in, in page one, right? It starts telling us a description of how God created the world, how he created it in love as a work of art. And he created the man and the woman. He formed them with his own hands out of the ground and he breathed his own life into them. He loved them and he breathed life into their bodies and he placed them in a garden paradise where they had everything they needed. And yet in spite of that, they turned their backs on him and they rebelled against him. And they opened the door for evil to come into the world. And as they did that, it brought along with it all kinds of other stuff. Hatred, sickness, death, greed. And God looked at this and it broke his heart and he told the people, you guys created this problem, but I'm gonna do something about it. I'm going to do something about it. And he told him, here's what I'm going to do. One day, there's going to be a person. A person will be born. And he will defeat the enemy. And he will make things right. He will fight the enemy. And he will be himself mortally wounded. But yet, in the end, he will defeat the enemy once and for all and forever. And then the rest of the Bible is all about that promise. It's the story of how God is working in history to bring about that promise, to bring that promise to fruition. That's what the whole Bible is about. It's the big story that all the little stories together tell. It's this big story of the promise, the gospel. And so the gospel is good news, but it's not new. It's not a new teaching. It's not a new message. It's the same thing that God has been promising and declaring since the beginning of time through the prophets down through history. The gospel is good news, but it's not new. That's verse two. And thirdly, the gospel is about Jesus. The gospel is about Jesus. Look at what verse three says. It says, the gospel of God concerning his son. That is the content of the gospel. It is Jesus. The gospel is all about Jesus. It's about who he is. It's about what he has done. The center of Christianity revolves around the person of Jesus. See, the gospel, three things on that point from verse 3 and 4 and 5. First of all, verse 3. The gospel is the declaration that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. One of the main promises that God gave through the prophets down through the ages was that when the Savior would come, he would be descended from King David, the great king of Israel. And so Jesus, he meets that requirement. He fulfills that requirement, we're told in verse 3. So Jesus fulfills the requirement of the promise. Secondly, verses 3 and 4 tell us the gospel is the declaration that Jesus is both fully human and fully God. Jesus is both fully human and fully God. Verse 3 tells us he descended from David after the flesh. In other words, Jesus is a flesh and blood human being. But verse 4 tells us that he was declared to be the Son of God. And then it says that he is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now that word Lord 
we can easily take that word for granted, but that word is a really big deal. See, for the Jewish people and for the Roman people, that word was reserved for speaking about deity. So for the Romans, you might remember in history class, they had this saying where the Caesars declared themselves to be gods, and they made people take this oath of allegiance that said, Caesar is Lord. To say Caesar is Lord was more than just to say that you uh, declare your allegiance to Caesar. It was to say, not only do I declare my allegiance to Caesar, but I recognize that he is divine. And Christians famously said, no, we will not say that phrase. For the Jews, the word Lord was the word that they used to speak about God. And the reason was because they considered the personal name of God, which we believe is pronounced Yahweh. But they considered it so sacred that they were afraid to take it on their lips, lest they accidentally use it in vain and God finds them unworthy. And so they wouldn't say that word, the proper name or the personal name of God. Instead, they would call him Adonai or Lord. And so what Jesus is saying here, it says that Jesus was declared Lord. It's a reference to Jesus' deity. So this is who Jesus is. Fully God, fully man. God come to us in human flesh. If he were not both, he could not be the Savior that we need. And finally, the gospel we see in verses 4 and 5 is the declaration that Jesus died and resurrected in order to give us new life. Jesus died and resurrected in order to give us new life. Verse 4 and 5 tell us he resurrected from the dead, and because of that we can receive grace. We've called this series Saving Grace. Because that's what the gospel is all about. It's about the saving grace of God. You know what grace is? Grace is when you receive something that you don't deserve. That's what grace is. When you receive something that you don't deserve. It's a gift. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. All you can do is accept it. And and the grace that we've received in Jesus is this. It's the gift of new life in him. Paul mentions here, he says we've received grace. And he said we've received apostleship. Earlier in his life, Paul had been a murderer. He had been a bad dude. He had been a blasphemer. And yet, God poured out grace upon him. Rather than giving him what he deserved, God forgave him and gave him a new life, a new identity, a new purpose, and he made him an apostle. And that same grace is available to you today. I hope you know that. That is the good news of the gospel. Jesus came, the one promised through the ages, fully God, fully man, and he lived the life that you ought to have lived, and he died the death that you ought to have died. He took the judgment for what you've done, and as a result, you can receive grace, a new life, a new identity, a new purpose, and a new calling. Let's talk about that next point. So that's what the gospel is. Now, what does the gospel do? First of all, we see verses 5, verse 7, verse 16. The gospel saves you. That's what the gospel does. First of all, the gospel saves you. Verse 5 says this, that because of what Jesus did, we can receive grace. Verse 7 says this. He says, to those who are in Rome who are called to be saints. That's an interesting word, isn't it? So I grew up going to Catholic church sometimes. My dad was Roman Catholic. My mom was Lutheran. And I went to Lutheran school, but I always kind of like going to Catholic church better because there's so much more stuff to do. You know, there's candles and statues and there's a whole sensory experience. But if I could choose to go to church, I would always, as a kid, choose to go to Catholic church. 
But one of the things that the Catholic Church was really big on was saints. Like even our church was St. Anne's. It was named after a saint. And, and saints, in, in their understanding, were people who lived a long time ago and they met certain criteria. They had done a miracle in their life and they had lived a life that was exemplary. They had lived a holy life. That's why it's so interesting here that we read in verse 6 that he says, all of you guys who are in, in Rome, and you're all called to be saints. And he says that's inherent to what it is to be a Christian, is to be called a saint. And that's really interesting because these people are, are not dead. They didn't live a long time ago, right? He's calling them in the time when they're alive, you are saints. Even though probably some of them didn't live very awesome lives. And yet, simply because they have embraced the gospel and put their faith in Jesus, he tells them that that makes them saints already. The word saint, by the way, it just literally means a holy person. A holy person. And that's where it gets really interesting. Because in this word, saint or holy person, we get to the very heart of the gospel and what makes the gospel so mind-blowing and incredible. Remember that story I told you about Martin Luther? How Martin Luther tried as hard as he could to be holy, to be right with God, so that God would be pleased with him and accept him. And yet, no matter how hard he tried, he failed. Well, another word for holiness is the word righteousness. It means to be right. And the Bible tells us that in order to be right with God, you have to be righteous, you have to be holy. And our greatest problem as human beings, and we're going to talk about this more next week and the week after, our greatest problem as human beings is that we are not righteous. We are not holy. We have fallen short. In fact, we continually fall short. And I don't need to explain that to you. You know that. We all inherently know that. And as a result... We are at enmity with God. We are separated from God. And unless something happens, we're going to be cut off from God forever. We talked about that last week when we talked about hell and exclusivity. So Martin Luther thought, well, look, I got to do something about this. And so he said, maybe if I can get away from everything, if I can get away from all the temptations in my life and my moron friends who are always talking me into doing dumb stuff, if I can get away from all that stuff and just seclude myself, then I'll be free from temptation and I won't sin anymore. And then, maybe then, I can be holy and right and God will accept me. And he tried it and it didn't work. Because here's the thing, the problem wasn't outside of him. He thought the problem was something outside. But as he came to know, it was a problem. The problem was inside of him. And you can't run away from yourself. And because of that, he grew. He said, I grew to hate the word holiness. I hated it, he said. I hated the word righteousness because every time I saw it, it reminded me that God is holy and I am not, that God is righteous and I'm not. And as a result, he felt God is disappointed with me, he's annoyed with me, and I'm never good enough and I never will be. And so he said, I hated those words, holiness and righteousness. He said, until that day when I read Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, which say this, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. And check this out. For in it, in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed that is from faith for faith. For it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And he said, that was my breakthrough. That changed everything. He realized something that he had never realized before. That the message of the gospel, the good news, is that because of what Jesus did, now God offers us his own righteousness as a gift. In other words, God makes us holy. 
In other words, we don't make ourselves holy. God makes us holy and we receive that gift by faith. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's why being a Christian means to be a saint, a person who has been made holy, not by your own merits, but because God has credited his righteousness to you. It's kind of like if you were in school and you got your report card and it was all F's, right? You got like one F plus, but it was still an F. And you're like, dang it, they're going to kick me out of the school. And there was this other kid, this smart kid, teacher's pet, and he's got straight A's, and you're like, man. But he says, you know what? I'm going to do something. He takes your report card, scratches out your name, writes his name on it. He takes his report card, scratches out his name, writes your name on it, hands it back to you, and then he takes the punishment. He gets kicked out so that you can receive the passing grade and be not only a passing grade, but the valedictorian. See, the message of the gospel is that because of what Jesus did for you, God now looks at you in a whole new way. He imparts Jesus' holiness to you. He credits Jesus' righteousness to you. He makes you holy. He makes you righteous. And in Jesus, you are those things. Not because you earned it. It's God's gift to you. And when Martin Luther realized that, he said, I used to hate those words, but now I've understood the gospel. And now he said, I love those words. They are the greatest source of comfort and hope to me in the whole world. Because now I understand it's not my righteousness, it's not my holiness, it's God's righteousness and holiness which he has given to me in Christ. And so because of that I can stand before him confidently knowing that he loves me, that he accepts me, and he's pleased with me because of Jesus. Look at what Paul says in verse 7. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul loves, if you read his letters, he loves to put these two words together, grace and peace. But if you'll notice, in all his letters, it's always in the same order. First grace, then peace. And I don't think that's a mistake. I don't think it's an accident. Because here's the deal. In order to have peace in your heart and peace with God, you have to receive God's grace. It's only once you've received God's grace that you can truly have peace in your heart and peace with God. So it's grace first and then peace. That's what the gospel does. It saves us because Jesus took our sins and gave us his righteousness. How do we receive that? Well, we're going to talk about that in just a minute. Second point here. We're getting to the end. The gospel sets your life on a whole new course. He says in verse 5, the gospel brings about what he calls the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith is when you hand over control of your life over to God and you make him your Lord. Not in order to earn his favor, but because he has already shown you favor and already done things to bless you. Have you ever been working on a project before? And, and you know, you're kind of struggling with it and somebody else comes along and they're just so much more capable than you are. And so you say to them, you say, hey, you know what? Could I just have you take over for me because I, I'm just gonna keep messing this up and you're way more capable than I am. That's what the obedience of faith is all about. It's when you see God and you see what he's done for you and you realize how much he loves you and you say, you know what, I'm just gonna have you take over from here because you're way more capable than I am and I can see that you know a lot more about this stuff than I do and I can see that you're totally committed to my best interest so I'm gonna let you be in charge. You call the shots from now on, I'll do what you say. The gospel sets your life on a whole new path, a path of obedience by faith, surrendering to God and making him your Lord. Verse 6, he says, those of you who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. That means that I give my life to him and I say, my life is yours. I would just mess it up anyway, but if I give it to you, you'll take it and you'll do something great and glorious with it. So go ahead, take my life, use it however and wherever pleases you the most. Verse 17, he says, 
The gospel is from faith, for faith. From faith, for faith. What that means is that the way you receive the gospel is by faith. But then you begin to live by faith. That's why he says, he quotes here, it's actually a quote from Habakkuk chapter 2, where he says, the righteous shall live by faith. You know what that means? That once God has done that work in your life of making you righteous, you receive it by faith, and the result of it is that you begin to live by faith. You know, our culture, in our culture, we use this word faith in kind of a, a different way than the way that the Bible uses the word faith, right? Like we use faith when we give like a, a pep talk to the little league team, or right? Like it's halftime at the basketball game and we tell a team, you got to have faith. Or we say, hey, the Broncos are terrible, but you just got to have faith, right? And we say these kind of things. And for our culture, the word faith has come to mean basically just optimism. Just be optimistic. That's what it means. You got to have faith. But when the Bible talks about faith, it's something different. You could define it this way. When the Bible talks about faith, it's talking about believing something so much that you act on it. Believing something so much that you act on it. That's what it means to live by faith. All of us, I think there are things that all of us believe, but we don't act on them. Like a lot of you probably believe that it's a good thing to floss every day, but I wonder how many of you actually do it. A lot of you probably believe that it's good to change your oil every 3,000 miles, but I wonder how many of you actually do that. To live by faith means that you believe the gospel so much that you actually act upon it. On a practical level, this means that you allow the gospel to shape every area of your life. For example, the Bible talks a lot about this in the New Testament. It talks about how since you have been forgiven, now forgive others. It talks about how you bring the gospel into your marriage and you say, this is how God has loved me and now this is how I'm going to love my spouse. Bring it into your relationships. That God loved you and reached out to you when you were unlovely. And so in the same way, you now reach out to those who you normally wouldn't want anything to do with, but you reach out to them because that is what God has done for you in Christ. Because Jesus gave everything for you, now you Act on that and be radically generous with what he has given you. See, that's what it means to live by faith. It's not obedience. Uh, it's not only obedience and submission to God, but it's applying the gospel to every area of your life. You guys in your community groups are going to talk about that in this coming week. I hope that you have great conversations. But see, here's the other part of that. When we don't do that, that's often what leads to problems and dysfunctions in our lives when we don't act upon the gospel. And so finally, I'll close with this. What are we to do with the gospel? First of all, we're to believe it. What are you to do with the gospel? First of all, believe it. Notice what it says in verse 16. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. For who? For everyone who believes. In other words, the gospel won't do anything for you unless you believe it. And the last part is this. Not only are you to believe it, but you're also to share it. Not only are you to believe it, but you're also to share it. Verse 8 and 12, this section right here, verses 8 through 12. Let me summarize it for you. Paul says, when I come visit you guys, you're going to encourage me and I'm going to encourage you and we're going to encourage each other. In other words, it's not going to be just a, a one-way thing where I'm encouraging you and you sit there and take it. No, he says, we're going to build each other up in our faith in the gospel. Because here's the thing about good news. Good news isn't meant to be kept to yourself. Good news is meant to be shared. That's why Paul says in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. I'll tell you this. Once you have experienced the life-changing power of the gospel, you won't be able to keep it to yourself. Paul couldn't. How can you be ashamed of good news? Paul says, once you experience this grace, you won't be able to keep it to yourself either. So that is my hope and my prayer for you today, that you would believe the gospel 
that you would experience the gospel's life-changing power so much that you can't possibly keep it to yourself. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this good news of the gospel. Lord, thank you for what you have done for us in Christ. And Lord, this morning, I pray that we would respond to that gospel, that we would respond in, first of all, the obedience of faith, and Lord, that we would also respond by applying the gospel to every area of our lives. Lord, may we respond to it by believing it, by trusting in it and clinging to it and relying on it as our only hope, as our greatest treasure. And Lord, may we respond to the gospel also by sharing this good news with others, unashamed of it, because it is such good news. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.